I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Tim, um, is the man with the leaf blower still standing outside your window staring creepily in or is he gone? Yeah, he is. And I'm waving at him right now and he doesn't really seem to be assuaged by my wave. He just <laughs> wants to stare. Like you're, wa- you're waving at him just as a greeting or you're like trying to communicate something to him? Kind of. I'm trying to communicate. Like, it's a wave <laughs> of greeting and a wave of dismissal. If you can imagine that wave being both those things at the same time. Very British. <laughs> Very British, right. (laughs) Slightly passive aggressive. Hey, welcome. Hey, go away. Right. (laughs) Well, which is a perfect segue because uh, that is pretty much how Stevens felt as he was visiting with these uh, these country British people in in the the reading today. So we are here to discuss day three evening of The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. And uh, we will get to that in just a second. First, though, I'm going to say a quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. As you know by now, if you've been listening to Close Reads for a while, if you're familiar with some of our friends here at the Cersei Institute, you know that New College is a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college, which is nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee. Focused on the great ideas, the quadrivium and the trivium, New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. New College Franklin, a new college reclaiming and recasting the old Augustinian idea of education to take delight in contemplating created truth. You can find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. That is, once again, newcollegefranklin.org. Every time I get through that ad read and I don't say disciplining and I manage to actually say discipling, I'm proud of myself, I gotta say. Nicely done, David. (laughs) Especially since considering how exceptionally hard you've been working during the last, what, I want to say week, but really probably more accurately. Years. It's many, many years. years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, basically what Tim is trying to say is he doesn't trust that I'm going to be able to get through this without making mistakes and <laughs> that uh, he was going to start making excuses for me. And I appreciate that, uh, that, that he's doing that. So um, like, yeah, preemptive kind of, am I allowed to say CYA? Does everyone know what that means? Can we edit this? Is it too late? Can we go backwards? I mean, it's in time? never too late, but I'm not to the point where I want to do that yet. You can go ahead and explain that for us if you want. <laughs> CYA means cover your nether region. Oh, yeah. Backside. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. Maybe we should edit that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah. So we are here. Uh, so, yeah. Well, now I got to figure out how I transition on that one. <clears throat> You're welcome. So, um, so yeah, Tim is, Tim is, uh, trying to make excuses for me and cover for me as a good friend does, right? So we are here to discuss day three evening, as I said, which takes place near Tavistock in Devon. And I have a couple of questions 
that it came to me as I was as I was reading. And this is a pretty long section, so we'll try to cover as much as we can. And quickly, actually, before I get to my questions, I should say, next week, we'll finish the book. And then the following week, we will do a Q&A episode. So if you have questions, send them to us on Facebook or Instagram, or shoot me an email at closereadspods at gmail.com. Actually, sorry, closereadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'll get to as many as we can as usual. There will be a thread on Facebook uh, if you'd like to put them on the thread. But you can also just message them to us or send them on Instagram or wherever you like. So, all right. So I, have, I do have some questions about this section. Uh, some things that I was intrigued by that I found, dare I say, um, interesting. And <laughs> um, I've got four or five things that, I'm, that, I'm, that I've been uh, contemplating and I need your help with them. The first question is, is Stevens a good butler? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, are you going to give us like all the questions or are you going to go one at a time? No, this is, um, we'll do, we'll keep it a surprise because I don't know if I go through all of them, I'm, I might want to change the order. So this way okay. I can keep you on your toes and also, nice. I can, you know, make a judgment call as we go along. So we'll start with that. In fact, that was actually the question that the third of the five questions that I wrote down. Okay. <laughs> so is, is, what do you think about this? Is Stevens a good butler? Uh, there's two ways of thinking about this. Is Stevens a good butler based on your definition of a good butler? And then also, is Stevens a good butler based on his definition of a good butler? And because I randomly chose off the top of my head as I was speaking here, Tim, I'm going to let you go first. It's a deceptively simple question, David. And Thank you. Very difficult. <laughs> no, no, it's like, like when you asked it, I immediately said, well, yeah, he's a great butler. But I was like, no, David's smart enough to not be asking a question with such a simple answer. Um, Jesus? <laughs> right, <laughs> it looks right. like a squirrel, but the answer is definitely... <laughs> gotta be Jesus. Yeah. I think, so the answer to another part of your question, does, does he, by his own definition, meet the requirements of being a good butler? I think the answer to that one is yes also. The whole question is, whether and I think this is a, one of the deep questions of the book is Stevens' definition of what is a good butler a good definition? And hmm. I think the answer is no, hmm. because he has abdicated his like responsibility over his own self to Lord Darlington in some pretty substantial way. And I think we discovered in this chapter that he is willing to do that. Hmm. Heidi. Thoughts? So I'm, I do have thoughts. Yes. (laughs) Um, Like Tim said, it is a, that's one of those questions that sounds simple, but there's a lot, there's a lot to that question. I think it's funny, Tim, that you said, this is one of the questions of the book, because as you were saying that I was jotting down in my notebook, the question of the book with the <laughs> underlines under it. Yeah. And, um, and I'm glad, I'm glad but, we're in agreement. Yes, But I think that there's even more to that because that I is, seems to be the question that Stevens is, wrestling over as he goes on there he's he's offering in some ways a defense against his own accusations against himself right but 
he's also hiding a lot and not entirely as you, um, he, he's so myopic about his own past, uh, and he's not drawing the same conclusions that we are, right? So there's that that irony in the true literary sense of the term, meaning that there's something that the readers know that the characters in the book do not. Right. And um, so this is a deeply ironic book in that sense, and also a tragic one because we see that maybe the question he's asking himself, is he a good butler, is not necessarily the, the real question, right? Which is, are you happy? Did you live a fulfilling or meaningful life? The question we're all asking about Stevens is the human question, but that's not the one he's asking. He's yeah. asking, am I a good butler? Was I a good butler? And to your point that you also made, Tim, uh, it's very clear in the book, again, those repeated phrases that we're watching out for, uh, that he's making a series of small mistakes that are trifling in themselves, right? And so, which is the same phrasing he used about his father, who is very clearly failing in his ability to fulfill his duties. And so my question throughout the whole book, and I'm sure yours has been, is he still capable especially with all the evidence we have of him running out of petrol and all that kind of thing. So maybe he, maybe he's not Hmm. anymore. And and do you mean because he's faltering in the same manner that his father was faltering? Yes, I do. That is what I mean. And he, he uses the same phrasing about himself that he used about his dad when he was so blind to his dad's. Yeah. Can you, can you point, can you, this, this is, Hey, that's a good example of close reading. Can you you point, can you give me more specific? Find an example of that. How about you ask another question while I look for that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, um, <laughs> like from my list, or that I just have based on. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't have it. What is the airspeed velocity of a swallow? <laughs> <laughs> so oh. Heidi and David, I, th- I mean, I think one thing that Heidi points out is the way. I think this is absolutely right. Stevens mitigates a mu- for uh, Stevens mitigates the errors of the ones that he loves. He er- he mitigates the moral errors of Lord Darlington. Like mm-hmm. I think it's like one of the first two pages of this chapter. He describes. He kind of opens up by saying, "Now let us describe. Let us now talk about the charges of anti-Semitism against Lord Darlington, yeah. which were based on very minor incidences. They were utterly untypical. And then you get a few pages in, and you realize that he. These are." Not, not minor yeah minor <laughs> right right so lord darlington has asked stevens to basically fire two housemaids who because they are jews and although this is not explicitly mentioned um during the firing it becomes kind of clear through mrs uh kenton's conversations with mr stevens that the fate that potentially awaits these two girls is dire. It's not like they're just going to go find another house to work in. Hopefully that's what happens. But Europe is being swept up into war, and the Nazis are beginning to round up Jews. If these two girls are not protected by employment within a great lord's home, then they are like out in the storm. And so the possibilities that they could be, I mean, 
I don't, it's never said explicitly that I recall, but the possibility that these two girls could be exterminated is on the horizon. Right. And to have Steven say, these were atypical and minor, you know, episodes. You're like Steven's brother. Come on. And he mitigates the, the danger, excuse me, he mitigates the errors that his own father has made, which I think are of a less grave nature. Um, but his father is growing old. Mr. Stevens refuses to acknowledge what Mrs. Kenton's desire to point this out to him. He mitigates those problems that, he's, well, that he knows about in his father. And and what's more, he he also uh, minimizes or mitigates or whatever his own mistakes. Yes, he, well, he's found not a couple fully honest of his yeah. own. Is, you know, honest with his, with, you know, what's maybe what's even causing his, the mistakes that he makes and seems to say, oh, they're nothing. They're nothing. You shouldn't worry about them. Right. Yeah. So on this, so do you guys do this when you read? Do you kind of remember where it is on the page when you read a yeah. certain thing? Oh, like yeah. I can kind of see it in my head. So I found a couple examples and my book, it's page six, but you guys have a different edition to, than I do. So I'll just read these. Um, pa- this is, pa- so it's page six in your edition? It's page six for me. But which I edition know do you have different. for people who do have it? I have it. the hardcover um, Every Man's Library edition. Oh, nice. Um, Got the fancy one. Well, I do like hardcovers. So whenever I can get them at reasonably priced, I will buy them. Um, so... Okay. So on this, this is him speaking about himself when he's considering going on the trip. So it's the very beginning of the novel. He says, the fact is over the past few months, I have been responsible for a series of small errors in the carrying out of my duties. I should say that these errors have all been without exception, quite trivial in themselves. All right. And my book on page 60, I'm sorry, 57, he's talking to Lord Darlington about his father. And he says, It is true that one or two errors have been noticeable recently in the discharging of his duties, but these are, in every case, very trivial in nature. So it's exactly the same ordering of the sentence, wording, almost the same phrasing. It's very nearly word for word. So I suspect, and there's several of these examples in, in the book, and so I I suspect that in in answer to your deceptively simple question, David, that we are coming (laughs) to him at the end of his ability to function in his duties. And I I also suspect that he knows that, which is that as well as this odyssey toward Miss Kenton is they're all of a piece, right? It's all the same. It's, I, I can no longer do it. So I'm reaching out to this woman that I love and hope that she will help me and complete me. And it's, it's really quite a tragic story. Yes. Oh gosh. So you following up on that, I think you mentioned this question of whether, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of thinking about this idea of happiness. Right. And, and I guess the word that kept coming to mind for me was contentment. Hmm. Um, and, um, I think even at the very end of this section, that might even be the word that he used. So but maybe that might be a confirmation bias type thing going on there. But um, do, do you, well, he talk, he's talking about the idea of waste, I suppose there. But do, do you think that, he, I don't want to say, do you think he's 
totally content because that's that's kind of a nonsensical question. But do you do you think that, or to what degree do you think that he is content, uh, professionally, personally, uh, at the same time? Heidi, I'll let you go first on this one. Okay, um, I I think he's deeply unhappy. I I don't think he's content at all, and I I but I also think he's not a fighter. He's not a man who has any vision for that, right? That's what, not what, what you, he's fighting for. He is not fighting. There's this clear. Oh, he's not fighting for contentment or he's happiness. not fighting for contentment or happiness. I, I, you, I think. Go ahead. Do you? I just want to ask a clarifying question. Mm-hmm. By that, do you mean that he is not? Um, he does not view contentment or happiness as an end or a goal worth pursuing or do you mean that there's sort of some kind of like that he's consciously not that he is consciously not pursuing those things or do you mean that there's something sort of subconscious in him that's sort of burying a pursuit of those things or something Oh, that that is a really good question i think that he is um you just checked off the list for a lot of I people. I know. You did too. It's interesting. So. That's why I said, dare I say. <laughs> people yes. who aren't listening, who people who aren't on the Facebook group are going to be confused by that. But basically there was a, uh, we'll just call it a um, adult version of bingo, of a uh, close reads bingo. <laughs> that someone created. But not adult, like X-rated adults. No. no yes. like You just made it worse. So. Yeah, I, I, I did. Okay. I did. Okay. Carry on anyway. Uh, carry on. All right. So, um, <laughs> Um, I, what I see in Stevens, this is a pet theory of mine about literature that I'm about to expound upon here. So, um, I settle in Tim, right? I love this. <laughs> um, I think one of the major themes of literature in the world and particularly in Western culture since the middle ages has been the, um, the wrestling between duty and desire in characters and novels. I think this is, and short stories. I think this is a very, very big theme in literature. Um, what should I do? What ought I do versus what do I want to do? What would give me pleasure and make me happy? In my opinion, right? These are the questions that characters mm-hmm. ask themselves. This is how they make choices. And uh, Stevens is in every way chooses duty over desire every single time. The thing about him though is that he has made that into a virtue, right? So when he's pushing her away, when she's flirting with him, trying to get him to talk about the book he's reading, right? There, it's that scene so profoundly illustrates that. He won't admit he's reading a love story because he's in love. And, Mm. or because he wants to, he can't even say I'm reading a book because I want to, he can't even say that on his time off. Yeah. Right. So he has to make it into something that serves his duty. Everything is sublimated to that. And to him, that is what being a good Butler is. So this, this ties into your original question, but the question every reader is asking of him is, but what about what you want? Yeah. Right? Like, is there any way to unite duty and desire? Which again, my pet theory is that is the entire pilgrimage to the kingdom of God. Right? And so, but that is the great divorce in this particular book. 
is between those two things. And he always chooses what he perceives as his duty, even if no one else perceives it as his duty. Do you think that he is, I mean, well, do you think that the book is saying that that is an unhealthy choice that he's made? Yes, I do think that that is what the book, I think that that is a conclusion that a human being would have to draw in reading this book. Mm. Tim, do you, do you agree that that is the central divide? She used the word, the great divorce. Uh, I guess that's two words, but she used the phrase, the great divorce <laughs> to, to describe this book. Do you agree with that or, well, I'll just end stop at question mark. <laughs> I do. I wonder if I would shade it in a, like, I might use slightly different words than Heidi, but I don't even know that I would use slightly different words. I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the two words that are at issue are duty and desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't even quibble with those words. I think that's, those are the horns of the dilemma in, inside of Mr. Stevens. And by the way, Heidi, by the way, that theory, that theory of literature, I mean, that like just resonates so strongly with me. Hmm. Even my, like I've done a bunch of talks at, through Circe about kind of the um, wrestling between maybe the intellect and the emotions. I often mm-hmm. think of things as, and the intellect is very clearly, um, that's where we arrive at those principles by which we attempt to conform our lives. Our duty is driven by arriving at kind of like intellectual principles like that. On the other hand, the emotions, at least in the popular imagination, sort of come up from, this is not what I think about the emotions, by the way, but they seem to come up as this sort of like dark forces of Mm -hmm. unknown and untamed um, kind of like demented passions of some sort. I think emotions are actually shaped very much by our intellect, but also by like desires that are sometimes kind of dark. They're not what we should want. And um, I think it's a great way to think about kind of the path, the journey of literature, especially in the West, um, especially since the Enlightenment, because those two things duty and um, desire have been pitted against each other. And I think Mr. Stevens in some ways is kind of like the, I'm not going to say the pinnacle, that that means a high point, <laughs> but I think he's kind of the end. He, he as a character is the conclusion of a man who wants to le- live purely by duty mm-hmm. to sublimate all desire. And I think this book is a cautionary tale about what happens to a man like that living in a society that is, or living under an authority that has grown corrupted. Well, but so you said he, he wants to live entirely by duty. Um, but, but one, but someone doesn't just sort of, well, I don't maybe I shouldn't put it. I was going to say nobody really just chooses duty over desire all the time. I think that's true, David. I think you can say that pretty strongly unless, you know, when we're born, we do have desires. We automatically try to nourish. Right. So I think that, I think you can fairly make that statement. Okay. So, so if we, if we accept that proposition, then, Mm -hmm. um, 
then what is it that's lurking inside of him that has that has driven him to be so completely committed to to his duty uh, that he can be so blind to you know um, he, so blind that he lacks empathy. Mm-hmm. Like he seems not to be able to see other people. Uh, or himself really for who they actually are or to be able to read I mean you know to read a room for example and I don't mean that we need to get into like trying to diagnose him with something that's not what I'm getting at but there has what, what do you think is going on uh, what's lurking inside of him what perhaps has has driven him um, to be that way as he's gotten as he's gotten increasingly older I mean is this so, supposed to be some sort of a commentary on the the uh, post you know, mid-century, post-World War II British psyche and that that's what it's inclined towards, or that it's spent its uh, history um, moving <laughs> moving towards that and as it gets kind of gets reflected in the convert, the two different sets of conversations that uh, the one with the, the lords who are saying this is not a democracy, you know, and then the people, the, the poor people who are, you know, the regular people who are saying this is a democracy that we have to preserve. Uh, it, I mean, I'm... Is is the, do you think that the book is meant to be read that way, or do you think that it's just sort of um... that it's meant to be read as an indictment of the of the British psyche? That yeah, that he that that his the way he the way he acts that way, the things that are lacking in him are just supposed to be representative of that, or is there something, or is, or is it uh, is it subtler than that? I, I'm because I've read some. I've, here's the why I'm asking that. That here's why I'm stumbling over this, I guess, because I have read critiques of this book that say it's a little bit too, you know, much of an analogy, basically of a like a cautionary sort of Pilgrim's Progress type of tale. That they, they wouldn't put it quite that way. Oh, yeah. But they would say that this is just it's you know he's too much of a of a sort of incomplete character. He's too much of a cipher that's meant to represent some sort of broad cultural change, and in that way, it it keeps the book from being as strong as it possibly could. I don't think, I don't agree with that, but I'm wondering like, do either of you agree with that? Or do you think that, um, or do you, if you agree with that, do you think that maybe it's the book is still good for doing that? Sure. I didn't want to come right out and say that, but I couldn't yeah. really get the question out without saying it. So I'm just going to do it because our listeners are going to be confused if I don't. <laughs> and I will sound like even more of a moron. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which isn't really ideal when you host a podcast, Never. but happens regularly. <laughs> uh, Tim, what do you think about that? I I agree with you, David. I don't I don't find that critique terribly compelling. I mean, I think that I think that the indictment of the British psyche is so powerful because Stevens is so like wonderfully and expertly drawn as a real individual who's living in British culture, yes, but I don't see him as just being sort of an allegory for the demise of the British psyche. I think the book is, is deeper than that. Mm-hmm. What, do you, I, what do you think, Heidi? Well, here's what I agree with about that, is that it is not Stevens who is under indictment in this book. I, I think that the worst, I mean, and, and, and I'm not going to speak for any other reader other than myself, but the worst I can feel about Stevens is exasperated at any moment. I, 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 he's not a villain. He's not a bad guy. 
He's endearing. We're rooting for him. We keep waiting for him to be redeemed. We wait for the floodgates to open, for him to be able to express this very uh, rich amount of depth of feeling that he clearly is holding back, right? So we're waiting for that catharsis Mm -hmm. all the time. And we want that for him. And it never comes. There's little glimpses, but I'm, I, I don't know that I could be convinced that he ever has that moment of catharsis and redemption. Although I think that there's flickers of, um, of his eyes opening to what he has lost in the novel. Uh, but so I, he's not under indictment, but I, he is definitely not a cipher. He is, and I, I don't know who those critics are, but I, I would be willing to take a gamble and say that they're not British because <laughs> this culture, the British culture, even to this day, but particularly then was, and was very duty driven in every way. And we in America are the complete opposite of that. American critics are very desire driven. We want the catharsis all the time. It's not a good book unless someone's crying at some point and saying what they feel and yelling at their mom. And you know what I mean? So that's like the books he was sneaking off the shelves. Exactly. Yes. So this, the, the idea that he's not a complete character, I think cannot be supported by the novel, but it can, it can definitely be supported that, it is an unsatisfying portrayal of someone who desperate that we desperately want to get well. Hmm. It's unsatisfying in that we, we, we don't see this heroic turn. You're not claiming it's unsatisfying right. as a piece of art, but no, it's brilliant as a piece of art, yeah. but you could read it and say, well, nobody would ever act like that, but that's, because we don't understand. And that's what the novel is trying to point out, right? That's, that's the mirror we're looking into is when duty can drive you to support the Nazis, when duty can drive you to dra- to push away everyone who's ever loved you, right? Like that is what's under indictment here. Mm. That not him. Mm. So can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, of course. I, I, I love um, that. Like the kind of like the worst that you can feel about Stevens is exasperation. I mean, because you see all of the forces that are pressing him into the shape that he's currently in, and it's hard to really be mad at him for right. that reason. However, did you feel more than exasperated when he agreed to turn the Jewish girls out of the house? Yeah, that was a really. I mean, that was just a, as they keep saying, wrong. All three of them at some point say it was wrong. Right. So, one of the things I was thinking about that's a that's a that scene is one of those scenes that would be great for reading with younger people. Mm. Yeah, like in a classroom, or if you're reading it with your kids at home, or something like that. And by the way, this is a great book to read with high schoolers. But um, because I think I think it's a great question. What what should he have done there? You know, I mean, because give being driven by because even the question of duty there, that's why it's such a bind, right? That's why I think it's such a it creates dissonance both mm-hmm. in him 
uh, him as he's looking, both him in the moment and him when he's looking back and for us as readers, because we're thinking about this concept of duty through the whole book. We've been conditioned for, you know, lack of a better word, uh, to, to think about duty the way he thinks about it, to, to use his definition to guide the way we're thinking about duty. Mm-hmm. And then that definition brings him to the precipice of a decision like this. And the way he's been defining it, the way he's been using it, he has, he has to decide how that definition can help him navigate um, a complicated moral you know, issue like what gets brought up. So on the one hand, he keeps talking about how his duty is to, to, to do what his master or the Lord or the, you know, whoever it is that he's serving asks him to do. So there's that very clear, specific professional duty, right? I do what I'm asked to do and I do it the best I possibly can. And I don't ask questions. And then there's, you know, there is a sort of higher moral duty that comes in conflict with conflict with that in this moment. And what it seems like he is unable to do is navigate like moral hierarchy mm-hmm. um, because he has so committed himself to one kind of duty and that in and of itself makes him very complicated, but it, it raises the question, what should he have done? And, and, and can we have empathy for the decision that he made? You know, it's one of those things where can, when someone makes a terrible decision, can you empathize with them for making it? Right. And I think, that I mean, everyone's going to respond to that a little bit differently. Um, I hesitate to ask e- either of you if you. I mean, I guess maybe we should talk about that. But but where, where I mean, what's the alternative for him in that moment to to quit? I guess right. But even in that moment, isn't isn't quitting? In a sense, you know, not doing his duty. He could say, "Well, I can stay here and do more good to help him change." If I stay here, the problem is he doesn't express anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think the problem is he's not thinking about it. The problem is that he seems unable to express it. And that that's right. what this, that's why this, the, the activity of writing this book becomes, I, I was thinking a lot about how it becomes so increasingly confessional as the book goes on. Yes. At first he's kind of relaying information and telling stories. And in this section here, which is the point in the most books, just ratio wise, where we would be leading into our climax, right? Mm-hmm. All this rising action. And we get this long section here. And this seems to be, you know, structurally the climax of the book. And this section is so confessional leading up to the sort of present day scenes. And it seems like what he's unable to do is sort of reconcile moral duty, like these hierarchies of duty. Do you agree with that? Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that, you know, go ahead, Tim. Well, I was just going to say, so, well, so either of you, what do you think he should have done there? How would you answer that question? I think and, and let, me, let me let me clear let me clarify yeah, here because some ahead, people David. when I ask that question some people think that I'm asking you to critique the author I'm not asking you to critique the author I'm just thinking in terms of characters making decisions what should yeah. what, what should that character have done in the moment I think he absolutely should have said no to Lord Darlington mm-hmm. I mean on the heels of that like push I back know. or ref- or refuse to do it and quit like he should have argued with him he should he should have been willing to say uh lord darlington i object and if lord darlington did not relent i think stevens should have been willing to say then it's time for me to find another employer i know on the other side of that like all of the reasons why stevens looked the other way i absolutely get it it's his entire livelihood he loves and respects Lord Darlington. He loves 
Mrs. Kenton. It would be saying goodbye to her potentially. But I, and it's his whole, whole like ethos being questioned. Oh yeah, like the, what, the way he everything. sees the world is being brought into question. Absolutely, but I also know I'm like sure that he knows that it is wrong, and not mm-hmm. just like kind of wrong, not just um, telling a little white lie. I think he knows it is profoundly, prof- it is a sin. It, I think when Mrs. Kenton begins to speak in their meeting um, afterwards, she is his conscience speaking in that scene. Mm. And I think he agrees with every word that Mrs. Kenton says, and he's arguing against her to kind of salve his own conscience, but he knows Mm -hmm. part. I think this is a, this is like, I love Dave that you see this as like a scene to read to high school students, because for me, so many of like the great, wrongs that are done against individuals they all look the exact same way and they all look like what is happening with mr stevens here Mm. um it's just easier to say i know it's wrong but i know it's wrong but i know it's wrong and if i say it's wrong and call it out um i will suffer extremely and, but my gosh, I just see, um, this is one of these moments where there's so much more at stake than where he draws a paycheck from. There's so much more at stake than, um, the kind of life that he's been living for the last, whatever it is, 25, 35 years, his soul is at stake in this scene. And so I think you, he looks the other you see, way. You see that scene as a a sort of turning point scene in his de- character de- and his development as a character and as a person and in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Heidi. You've been listening. Yeah. I yes. I think. I mean, maybe you're on your phone or something. I, I think know. no, no, no. I think yeah, <laughs> just playing words with friends. Um <laughs> I, <laughs> Um, I think that we are in this conversation is the very heart of the book, like the very, very, very heart of the book, both on the personal level of Mr. Stevens character and on that second level of interpretation of the critique, the social commentary, the critique of the society like this. So if we were in um, a Shakespeare play, this would be act four, right? Like we'd have the big decisions have been yeah, made. That's and a great the, point. The yes. long act four. Yes. Shorter like, five. Here is where everything that has been on, at stake is coming unraveled. Right. So, um, this, and if we're sticking to the duty desire theme, which there's lots of themes in this book, but I, I think that that is the one that really gets like that that's the razor's edge that's the sword um that the dividing line um that here we have in that scene that we're referencing we have not a conflict between duty and desire but a conflict between two competing duties right which is another big theme in literature from hamlet to the oristia all the way to you know, something like the crown right now that explores what about when you are a duty driven person and you have an impossible choice, 
What if you're choosing between your marriage and your crown? What if you're choosing between avenging your father? You know what I mean? These, these yeah. big duty questions, which vow, which, which duty do you choose? And I agree with Tim completely. Of course, he makes the wrong choice, but that's where the social commentary comes in. I'm reading Alan Jacobs' book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, and that is the crux of the book, that, that the whole question of the middle of the 20th century is, does Western culture, does specifically in Europe, uh, is the structure of moral duty sufficient to the rising evil in the culture? And the answer in this book is a resounding no, it's not. It's not enough. Hmm. Hmm. That's why I'm so intrigued by the, the confessional nature of this long section. And yes. I, just, I just was thinking about how the section we read for today is one quarter of the whole book, almost exactly. In my book, I think it's like hmm. within one page of being to the quarter, uh, uh, one quarter of the book. So oh, you know, it's kind of an, an outsized... <clears throat> uh, an outsized ratio makes me wonder if most act fours in Shakespeare end up being a quarter of the lines or something um, that I don't know anything about that. It's just, you know, a question. Um, don't, no one should quote me that I'm saying. That. <laughs> but David, wait, you're a <laughs> Um Correct. So, um, but that's why I'm so intrigued that it's so confessional because because he increasingly looks worse and worse and worse every time something happens in this act. And I was, or this, <laughs> now I've done it. This, this uh, act, section. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but um, I was wondering why do you, why, man, in the rest of the book, the sections are much shorter and the scenes sort of, the scenes, the little stories or the memories or whatever tend to take up their own chapter. But here in this long section, one of the questions I wrote down actually was why did he put all of this into one long chapter? Like, why does he have the scene where um, Lord Darlington sends the, the Jewish girls away? Why is that in the same section as the scenes with him meeting with the, the British, uh, the, you know, the country people? Yeah. And then why, is the, why are both of those in the same section where he details his sort of falling out with... Uh, with Kenton and throughout he increasingly looks worse and worse. Like mm -hmm. first he kind of looks the other way and sort of blindly goes with his duty. And you can say, well, okay, he's trained himself to go to do that. Um, he perhaps, you know, um, you know, he, and then he says later he regrets it. And, and Mrs. Kenton seems to seem like, seems to say, okay, that that's enough. But then her, her aunt dies and he has no ability to communicate empathy or, right. or, um, or solidarity or anything with her, you know, and she was so um, good to him when his father died. I think that that was something that really came mm -hmm. at, as a point of comparison, but he looks worse and worse, but all of these happen in the same chapter. And so that's a pretty clear, I mean, unless he just got writing and didn't decide not to break it up, but that seems to be a pretty clear uh, distinction between the rest of the book. And I'm wondering why you guys think a, that he puts that yeah. all together and B, uh, um, well, let's start there. I have a follow-up question on that, but I don't want to put it out there yet. <laughs> so, uh, any thoughts on that, Tim? Heidi, I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to continue reading that first section that Heidi read about 15 minutes ago. Cool. It was on her cool. page six. It's on my page five. And I'm going to read the whole paragraph. Um, so why are all of these memories for Stevens? Why is this section so long? Why are all these kind of different events grouped together in this section. So I think that it's, 
he's going to give an answer or he's going to step right up to answering that question in this paragraph I'm about to read. And then he's going to love when you guys come armed with a passage. (laughs) (laughs) The fact is over the past past few months, I have been responsible for a series of small errors in the carrying out of my duties. I should say that these errors have been without exception, quite trivial in themselves. Nevertheless, I think you will understand that to one not accustomed to committing such errors, this development was rather disturbing, and I did, in fact, begin to entertain all sorts of alarmist theories as to their cause. As so often occurs in these situations, I had become blind to the obvious. That is, until my pondering over the implications of Mrs. Kinton's letter finally opened my eyes to the simple truth. Pause. At this point, the answer should be, all of the events that were that happen in the section that the three of us are reading right now. That's what I think the answer is. Mm-hmm. What is his answer given on page five, page six? That these small errors of recent months had derived from nothing more sinister than a faulty staff plan. <laughs> and you're like, you know, when you go back and read that section, you're like, bro, a faulty <laughs> staff plan. This is the problem. Like, yeah, firing people for no reason. What's that? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, your faulty staff plan is firing people for no reason. Right, for horrible reasons, immoral reasons. Yeah, even worse, yeah. I I feel like this section, all of these different events are coalescing together because in Stephen's mind, all of his memories are sort of functioning like... um, like antibodies do against disease, like they rush in and they are trying to deal with this wound. And Stevens is trying to deal with this wound of what went wrong. What went wrong with me and Mrs. Kenton? What went wrong with Lord Darlington? And what went wrong with me in all of these different events? Though he, I think, is having a hard time actually putting them all together that they all can they're, they're all cohering around a similar problem i think that's what is that's what's going on all of these memories have grouped right here right now and they all have a common cause which is stevens has abdicated himself this is the way i'm phrasing it. he's abdicated himself in favor of this ideal that he has of duty, this ideal that he has of what a good butler ought to be, what dignity truly is. And he's forsaking and pushing away the things that he wants that are good. And he's pushing away his own conscience in dismissing these girls. Mm -hmm. I love that you talked about the ideal. I mean, I know we talk, (laughs) we talk a lot. Um, around here about this concept of the ideal <laughs> type. But I think that what's happening here is you, what you're seeing is somebody recon- saying that this is an ideal type. There is some kind of an ideal that is worth pursuing, but then, and pursuing that single-mindedly and the pursuit of an ideal single, you know, single-minded pursuit of an ideal is sort of a good thing. Right. Mm. But he does that um, without um, a sense, without wisdom, without a sense of, mm. without attending to this, to justice, um, mm. without attending to, um, all the virtues that sort of have to be under the surface to enable someone to actually reach the ideal. Like as if there's a bunch of activities or actions that by doing those things make you the ideal. But to be 
the true ideal to actually to to actually incarnate that ideal type there is so much that has to go on under the surface so many and i use the word virtues i think that's probably uh, for the sake of conversation, probably all I need to say that there are these virtues that have to be developed and uh, cultivated and uh, lived out to actually reach that ideal. And that that single-mindedness has to be um, in, in pursuit of balance as much as it does just this one sort of narrow definition of what that ideal is. And I think that you see, the easy thing to do is to see on the surface, this is what that ideal looks like. And so you pursue that surface thing that the ideal seems to look like without really understanding what it actually is. So he <laughs> seems to have this idea of what a... a mm. Tim, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay, that's okay. Well, I was just going to say, he seems to have this sense of what he believes a butler is, and it's probably true, but there's more to it than what he initially set himself out to become. Does that make sense? Yeah. Go ahead, Tim. You were, I, you were going to, it sounded like you were going to talk and I kept going. I didn't. I wonder if, I wonder if this is an indictment of the British ideal. I mean, this is this is kind of um, so. Let's back up and talk for a second about like the ideal that that um, concept shows up in norms and nobility. Like every education has to be operating under the of there is an ideal type that we want our students to aspire to, and it's one of the things that it's like maybe the thing that's missing in contemporary education. It's part of what classical Christian education is seeking to restore. There's an ideal type student. We want you to become like this. This is what a virtuous student looks like. This is what a virtuous human being looks like. Um, a virtuous human being is honest, is forthright, is loving. So I think that um, Stevens has a very clear ideal an ideal type of what a butler is. And I think in some ways he hits it before he begins to get a little bit older. He hits it absolutely on the mark. Mm -hmm. He's part of a great house. He serves a great Lord. He serves with the utmost dignity and he, with the utmost precision, he nails it. The problem is that the type itself is deficient. Yes. It's lacking. And so Stevens is discovering all of these things. He hasn't even like words to you. He, he doesn't even know what the words are to articulate that, his, that this ideal type that he's been pursuing is shallow. It's, in, it's, it's, it's lacking. It's morally um, deficient and, and spiritually deficient and it lacks capacity to acknowledge desires, good mm -hmm. desires that he has. So I think this is kind of like an indictment of the ideal of, I mean, maybe we go bigger and say British aristocracy, but at least of the British butler and of that British system. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that we're reading after virtue kind of offline, and part of the thing that I like so much about that book is that the author, Alistair McIntyre, also refers to something like an ideal type. But he is very quick to point out that the ideal type is constantly in a sort of process of negotiation, um, that the tradition that upholds the ideal type is an extended argument about 
the goods of the type. Is this type really good? We need to argue about it and make sure. And I think Stevens had no capacity to argue about whether or not this type that he had spent his entire life pursuing was actually good. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you, well, did you want, yeah, go ahead. I was going to see if you yeah. wanted to ask. <laughs> um, I just think that is so, so profound. Um, in this section that we just read, uh, David, to your question about why do we have all of these kind of anecdotes, these memories and these reflections with a confessional tone, I like that phrase, in in this section that we read, I agree with Tim and that, that's kind of the, the big picture, right? Like that's the lens through which I think that we, or the conclusion we come to, the lens through which we can read this uh, novel and then, but on the, like the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of how he does that in the novel, the craftsmanship mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm. how, what, what's kind of the thread that ties these things together in this section. And I think that it comes down to Miss Kenton's question um, that she asks him at the beginning of this chapter when they're, I think it's when they're talking about the girls and she or you guys can correct me. Maybe it's when, I, I don't remember when it is, but when she says to him, why, why, Mr. Stevens, do you always have to pretend? Yes. I think that that is such an important question. And in typical Miss Kenton fashion, she nails it. She has this wisdom, right? But she doesn't have the moral courage to act upon that wisdom that she has, the insight that she has is, is remains, maybe that's not wisdom because wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, right? That's actually in the Bible. So I'm going to take that back, but I'm going to say she has insight. She's asking the right questions throughout the whole novel, but she is either impotent or uh, lacks the moral courage to put them into practice, right? She won't quit even when she knows she should. Which to your point, Tim, when you made that, the point that this is a turning point, I think it is because I I wonder, and I've read that section, this section twice now, and I, I, I've both times I thought, what if they both quit? Right. What if they both quit? And they could get married and they could be happy and they could build a I life. I know, I know, I know. And he walks away because to your point, the framework of this culture is not sufficient to the evil that is rising against it. It can't do it. Mm -hmm. It is deficient. The ideal type is now no, it's going to crumble under the weight of this evil in Europe that is rising and it's going to corrupt everybody. Which presumably makes it not ideal. Exactly. Yes. I mean, you're right. It isn't an ideal. It's their, it's their type, but it isn't the ideal type. That's a great point. One of the things that I love is that you're talking about how she doesn't have the sort of moral courage. Mm-hmm. And uh, she comes sort of... The, the, she does have the courage to tell him, I didn't have the moral courage. Like she yes. she can she mm-hmm. admits it, right? And whereas even though he is increasingly making himself look worse and worse in this section, he never gets to the point where he actually can say... I was wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I sinned. I made an error. I did. I, what I did was morally indefensible or, or even that I, you know, it's, 
even or, or he'll always say there's like some sort of an excuse for his mistake, right? Even the end of the section, oh man, I just had to, I just had it and turned away from it. He says he's talking about um, how can one possibly be held to blame in any sense? Because say the passage of time has shown that someone's efforts were misguided, even foolish. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I carried out my duties to the best of my abilities. Um, it's hardly my fault if his lordship's life and work have turned out today to look at best a sad waste. It is quite illogical that I sh- should feel any regret on my own account. And then there's the section a little bit earlier. Let's see if I can find it. It's very dark in this studio. And so finding things is sometimes a challenge. Um, um, he says, well, what is the sense in speculating? This is on 179 in mine. What, what is the sense in speculating what might have happened had such and such a moment turned out differently? Um, naturally one looks back to such instances today and they may indeed take the appearance of being crucial, precious moments in one's life, which is a nice bit of meta stuff going on there. But of course, at the time, this was not the impression one had. It was as rather, it was as though one had available a never ending number of days, months, years in which to sort out the vagaries of one's relationship, an infinite number of further opportunities in which to remedy the effect of this or that misunderstanding. There was surely nothing to indicate at the time that such evidently small incidents would render whole dreams forever irredeemable, which is an incredible sentence, by the way. Yes. Um, I see him becoming unduly introspective and in a rather morose sort of way at that. And so I added that last bit there because it's not unduly introspective, right? Like that's the work of the conscience. And what happens is he hides behind you know, these sort of philosophical meanderings, these reflections on the, the way time works, basically hides behind excuses. And she comes right out and says, yeah, I didn't have the courage to do what I actually should have done. I should have left. I didn't have the that's courage right. to do it. And that's the, the contrast between those two characters in little things like that is, uh, is I think, where the, the sort of central conflict uh, that you guys are laying out throughout this conversation is incarnated. I think it's incarnated in those two characters and in the way that they're both not able to come together, but also in the way that they uh, view themselves and their place in the world. Right. I agree. Tim, were you going to say something? No. No. You sure? Yeah, I'm positive. Oh, okay. I just wanted to hear what you were saying, David. It was, it was great. Oh, well, that was nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> Do I not compliment you enough on the show? Do I need to... <laughs> no, you're very... I feel like you're very complimentary on this show <laughs> um, guys let's all talk about our feelings since that's what we should do yeah. because of this book i don't know that's like that's outside of the bounds of duty <laughs> so well i do okay so i do have a question though that that's another question that i wrote down because that is the opposite side right that's right there has to be there is an appropriate degree that there is a degree to which he is right 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 that 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 he is right, that, that his duty, that there is certain things that duty demands of you and you do them and you put off the emotions that are surrounding them and you do them because they're the right thing to do. Um, or because it's just your duty, even if it doesn't, you know, or because you're unsure or something like that. I mean, I think there's, that's a loaded, because it's the right thing to do is a loaded phrase. Um, so what is the balance? What is the balance the book is suggesting? I think is maybe my, my, but the thing I'm most interested in. I mean, I have my own opinions about where that balance is. Um, where do you think the book is telling us that balance is between emotion and right now I'm talking so you can think between emotion and, uh, and duty or between desire and duty. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I don't know that I can answer the question. So, so no, I mean, <laughs> no, I have like, I have too many thoughts about that, but I don't know if I could articulate a rubric for deciphering 
when to follow each. I do think that my my best shot at it would be um, there that our affections ought to be in a hierarchy. And it's an interesting word given the context of this book and some of the debates going on between, you know, in those two scenes where that, that he's sort of Stevens is sort of overhearing the one he gets, the two conversations he gets dragged into incidentally, one between these really rich guys and one between these country people debating the merits of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I, I think each of us lives by a, a moral code and that moral code has things in which we would say, this is at the absolute top. I, if I ever let go of this, this virtue, then the others below it are now at risk. So, I mean, you could even argue, and I think rightly, that the Ten Commandments are, they're kind of hierarchical. So, when, when Rahab um, in the city of Jericho is visited by the Israeli spies, um, she hides them, and then when the men of Jericho come and ask her if she had seen the spies, you know, she lies. She breaks the law, but she's counted as righteous because hierarchically she is the servant to a higher ideal, a higher truth that the God of Israel is like the God. I have to show allegiance to him. And so I think where do desires, to go back to your question, David, like desire and duty, how do we navigate those? I think you navigate them by constantly being in conversation about my actions and my conscience. Are they in conformity with a good hierarchy of affections? And I think that hierarchy of affections is kind of the way in which we navigate these conflicts between what we want and what we ought to do, which happen every hour of every day. So read Hamlet. Right. I mean, you're, that's not wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. I, th- I mean, to go along with what you were saying, Tim, I think that we always go back to the Christian ethic, which is love, right? Love is the higher Love is the higher law. And now by that, I do not mean be ruled by desire. And that is what some people hear when I, when, when we say that when right. Christ, when our Lord says that some people read, read that in scripture and assume that means that whatever I love can be my God. Right. So, but true love, charity, love in the Christian since the highest duty of the Christian ethic is a uniting of duty and desire. And the the sacrament of marriage is the picture of that, right? Because now that I am married to my beloved, my desire and my duty are the same. My desire is to love him and my duty is to love him. That is the, that is what the ideal type of marriage is. The tyrannizing image of love is that, the uniting of duty and desire in a, in a committed uh, lifelong relationship. That's... That's why it is the allegory of the kingdom of God. So in this novel, you can look and you can say, if it was ever on his radar to allow desire to inform his moral choices, 
then he could have considered Miss Kenton. And in that all important confrontation, he could have said, well, no, I can't, I can't be a part of a house that will reject these housemaids because they're Jewish. I have to leave because I love them. And you know what? I love Miss Kenton. And, and so, I love Lord Darlington. Even, that's you know, right. Yeah. And in loving you, I cannot allow this evil to infiltrate this house, right? So that is the thing that Western culture in this time didn't have. It didn't have that Christian ethic of love. It had duty divorced from love in, in Britain, right? So that's that's why it wasn't sufficient to the task that was asked of it. And I think he's getting there in the novel. I think that's why there's a Miss Kenton in this novel, right? That this was his opportunity for redemption, that this mm-hmm. fake marriage, you can see my air quotes, right? This fake marriage, this pseudo marriage that they had when they run a house together and they have cocoa together every night, it gets to the point that that's not enough and he won't get past his false duty to get to his true duty. And that I think is how you fight evil is you fight for happiness. I'm thinking about C.S. Lewis and... um I can't remember which book it is. Maybe you guys can remember when he talks about uh, uh, patriotism and he says, I'm going to butcher it. I'm going to say it badly. And he says it beautifully, but he says something along the lines of if somebody, if a thief breaks into your house and you shoot him because you're claiming some higher duty, you're just an jerk. I think he says ass in the book, but if you do it because you love your family and your home, Mm. right you're like get Mm. out of my house this is mine you do it out of affection Mm. then you are a good man and and that is i think some of what he is of of what this novel is addressing if he could have just done it because he wanted to if he could have just loved her Mm -hmm. if he could have loved lord darlington if he could have felt any affection opened himself up to that, that could have been his repentance and his redemption, but he wouldn't do it. It reminds me of the, uh, the line from Howard's end. It all comes down to affection, right? That Wendell Berry yes. then wrote an essay on. Tim, you remember talking about that, I imagine. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's same, same era. There were some people were mentioning the, the, uh, well, they were comparing Wilcox with Stevens. And I think that's an apt comparison. Um, do you, what in what ways do you guys think Stevens has changed at this point in the novel? I've been I was thinking about that a lot because it, you know usually at this point there's some some seeds of change begin to emerge yeah. uh, as characters sort of evolve and see new things and this is a perhaps a slightly different structured book than a traditional story but and yet I'm wondering if you see him to this point uh, evolving or changing or seeing things differently or or anything like that. It's kind of a hard question because there's two Stevens at this point. There's the Stevens who is remembering, and then there's the Stevens of the memories. Hmm. Um, I think that the Stevens who is remembering, I think that we're seeing him change because (laughs) of what he's choosing to remember. Like what is kind of the act of remembrance is causing to change. How so? How do you see that? the things that he is recalling to mind are not the errors of a staff plan anymore. Uh They're the ways in which he's fallen short, the ways in which 
Lord Darlington fell short. The things that they, um, the story that he is telling seems to be finally a real story, not a like corrupted business blueprint. Hmm. Hmm. Heidi, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that Tim is right. And I think David, you, you, talked about the tone shift here in this section. I think that's true. I don't, I don't see evidence of repentance. And that to me is the catalyst of change in a character, in a human, um, in a literary sense too, right? That's that moment of, you know, the, the protagonist kills the monster, whatever it is, they go through some kind of symbolic death or whatever. Like I don't see that. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was thinking I was, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking there, you know, at the end of this long section that I I just read it, he says something like, um, it's not my fault. You know, how can I be, how can I be blamed for this or whatever? You know, how can I be blamed for what Darlington did? Right. But then in some ways, I wonder if this chapter is sort of the battle. You know, if you have, if your climax is yeah. your great battle, is this chapter itself at the evidence of an inner battle? You know, are these memories as they're being laid out, um, and even his the things that he including including the night before when he's being forced into this conversation. Um, and when he's uh, slightly dishonest, you know, by slightly, I mean a lot, um, is that, are the memories themselves, the act of remembrance, the act of reflecting and confessing, is that itself the battle being waged that leads to change? Right. Because you see this sort of inner struggle, the, the back and forth where he's, he acts, he says things like, um, you know, I, this is probably the wrong thing to do, or, you know, I don't know what to do. And then he comes back around and makes an excuse again. And it, there's this, there's this sense of tension and conflict that's going on throughout this whole section. And it doesn't get resolved. It's as if, it's as if he lost a crucial battle at the end, but what, what are the ramifications of the battle is what's going to play out of these next two sections. Right. I completely agree with that. And this last section on my, the, how this ends the last page of this section that we read on in my book, it's on page 176. This last sentence is so, I mean, just the craftsmanship of this whole inner monologue that he has debating whether or not any of this is his fault without even asking the question, right? Like is so brilliantly crafted. Um, but the insight into his character and into his inner struggle. And this goes to kind of what both Tim and I are saying, which is, I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah, he's changing in the sense that he's actually facing something, but is he repentant? Right. So he, this last sentence is, it is hardly my fault if his Lordship's life and work have turned out today to look at best a sad waste. And it is quite illogical that I should feel any regret or shame on my own account, which is as good of, as an admittance that he is feeling regret. (laughs) Right. I guess that's kind of what I'm right. So he is, but he doesn't want to admit it because what does that do to his life? So that, but, but even him saying that 
to Tim's point is, I mean, that's so hard fought to even get there. Yeah. The question right. is, right. is yeah. he going to yeah. take the next step? Right. And I know that feeling when I'm like, I'm convinced I'm right. And then it turns out that I'm completely wrong. And I was just being a jerk, but I just still, I'm not ready to admit it. Right. And I have that moment when I know it, but I'm not willing to admit it. And then am I going to fill in that gap to actually repenting? Or am I going to just yell and be mad and blame other people? It, it struck, as I was reading that section, I've read this book before, but as I was reading that section, uh, I started thinking like, wait, who was accusing him? Who is, who is like accusing him of needing to feel regret or shame? Like who, who is it that's accusing him of that, that he is fighting back against? Because his defense is, look, maybe Lord Darlington did things he shouldn't have done. And yeah, I served him, but it's not logical that I should have to, his, he turns to this idea of logic, which is really interesting to me. He, he, in keeping sort of with, his definition of duty, right? It's not, he's avoiding this sort of concept of desire and emotion. He's turning to reason, to logic. What, what is the logical way I should be thinking about myself? And it's as if it's the last sort of stand against actually feeling remorse. Like right. real heartbreaking, life-changing, um, regret-filled remorse that's going to alter the way you think about your legacy and your future and everything that you've spent your life doing. I mean, and I don't blame him. That's this is the thing. I don't blame him for not wanting to take that last leap. Right. For wanting to, I don't blame him for wanting to hide behind logic and say all I was doing my duty. The logical thing was for me to do my duty and because I did my duty, I did the right thing and I it's not me who did these things that Darlington did. It's not me. So he's hiding behind and I don't blame him at all. And that's why I think this is such a good book because it allows you, it gives you some permission to feel empathy for the, for him as he goes through the struggle. Right. It doesn't throw either you or the character, you know, in the garbage. It, it doesn't just throw you out because you did, because he did the wrong thing. I mean, there's so much going on there in the, uh, the realm, the empathy, empathy wise, uh, to borrow a, you know, phrasing from my favorite movie. <laughs> Does that, um, yes. is that, well, do you think that I'm wrong in feeling that way? Either of you? No, no way. That's okay. Exactly okay. true. Well, and he addresses that obliquely in this whole inner monologue that he has um, on in the page before that, my book, it's page 175. He says, indeed, Mr. Harry Smith's words tonight remind me very much of the sort of misguided idealism, which that's code for moral courage. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. Misguided, Misguided idealism. Idea. Can you say that Which, in your best British yes. accent, please? <laughs> With pinkies out. Yeah. Remind me very much of the sort of misguided, misguided idealism. Misguided idealism. <laughs> which beset significant sections of our generation throughout the 20s and 30s. Okay, and I'm going to switch to America now. I refer to that <laughs> strand of opinion in the Cal- profession. California. Yes, which suggested that any butler with serious aspirations should make it his business to be forever reappraising his employer, scrutinizing the latter's motives, and analyzing the implications of his views. Only in this way, so the argument ran, could one be sure one's skills were being employed to a desirable end. Right? So, of course, this is what we're saying. Have mm-hmm. some moral courage. Do what is right. Right? And he's calling that misguided idealism. That's just the way people were thinking in the 20s and 30s because they were young and they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And, and then, Heidi, am I, am yeah. I right in saying that doesn't he point 
to another butler who sort of falters yeah. professionally yeah. because he has these kind of like what Mr. Stevens might call like, you know, free thinking or these kind of, this kind of naive idealism. Isn't that mentioned in the book? Yeah, yes, it is. It is, but I don't remember where or the circumstances. Do you, David? It's, uh, well, it's in this section. Yeah, it sure is, <laughs> isn't it? It just makes not, me think that that butler, what if that butler was in a situation similar to Stephen's situation? Huh. And he said, I won't do this. And now he looks like he's a professional failure. But he, I mean, I'm, I'm totally imagining this character's inner self and we get very scant information about him. But I wonder if he shows up in Mr. Stevens' conscience because he did something that Stevens didn't have the courage to do. And now right. Stevens is quick to kind of name him as a professional failure. Right. To kind right. of to offset that like potentially painful feeling that Mr. Stevens might have knowing right. that the other butler made a choice of integrity. Right. That's right. Well, there was even the guy that Kenton knew who couldn't quite live up to the standard. You know, there was something. I wonder this. if that's him, David. I wonder if that's the guy that I'm talking about. Yeah, I think it might be. His ultimate dream would have, she says his ultimate dream would have been to become butler of a house like this one. But uh-huh. when I think of now of some of his methods, really, Mr. Stevens, I can just imagine your face if you were to be confronted by them now. It really is no wonder his ambitions remained unfulfilled. I gave a small laugh. In my experience, I said, too many people believe themselves capable of working at these higher levels without having the least idea of the exacting demands involved. It is certainly not suited to just anybody. So true, she says. Um, and then he talks about the qualities that are demanded. Um, I don't know if that's the one exactly that we were thinking of, but I'm, there was... there's. There, and then there, there was the Mr. Graham, who was the valet butler to Mr. Cham- to James Chambers. Is that the one that you're thinking of? I don't think that's the one. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I could look at it after the podcast. Maybe I could dig him up. Post it. Because that does ring a bell. I think, that, I think that's true. Oh, no. Mr. Graham is the one that says that all housekeepers want to be mothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it doesn't even reassure him. No, I assure you that Mrs. Kenton has no desire to have her own family. <laughs> and then, you know, like two, two paragraphs later, Mrs. Kenton's daughter is um, welcome to me for a visit. <laughs> oh, um, so well, there was something I wanted to, something I wanted to say after what you were saying there, Heidi, what were you just saying? I don't know. Something. There was a passage I was going to point towards. Um, about are you talking about the misguided idealism conversation? Yeah, but the, it's something you said sparked something very specific. Um, we probably should uh, start thinking about final final thoughts anyway. So Tim or Heidi, whichever you wants to go first, I'll let you uh, offer. Heidi, I'll uh, go first. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm anticipating the end of the novel, which I finished last week, and I think. Um, just to kind of prepare us as we read the last chapter. When I think about what would happen if Mr. Stevens 
actually began to like really change. What if Mr. Stevens um, rewrote this history in five years with his conscience kind of like continuing to kind of like comb over these events and these relationships? Hmm. And if he could tell a story in which he could take some measure of responsibility, I think that would be maybe what Heidi is talking about. Like that's the beginning of his redemption or maybe that even is his redemption. And so I, when I think about like what would be the next step for that to take place, um, I wonder if the kind of rigidity of Mr. Stevens, that rigidity would need to relax in some way hmm. into playfulness. Hmm. And I don't mean huh. like the playfulness of a child, but I think banter. Banter. Huh. So yeah, Matt Bianco. We'll we're gonna have a we're gonna have an indictment on on your right. thoughts on uh banter. Is this a defensive banter or a critique of banter? That's why we read this book. Patty, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts? Is this the chapter with this is this has Mr. Cardinal the Young? Is that this that's chapter? the next that's the next one? That's, okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um does well, that ruin then, your final thoughts? <laughs> it does kind of ruin my final thought. I was looking through here, um, trying to find that, and I didn't. So I'll save that final thought. Don't worry. It's written down. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. You'll, if you don't write things down, you'll forget them. I clearly. do forget them. Uh, but I think that to go back to the question of why is this section so long, I find that like a really interesting question. And I thought a lot about that this week too. And why are there all of these um, different seemingly disconnected anecdotes? And I put forward the theory that that has to do with pretending. Um, Because in every single one of these uh, anecdotes, he is hiding something. He's not saying something. Um, Yep. Yep. That's good. Like he is, there's, there's He's something pretending that to be Darlington should, or something. Yes. Like there's yeah. something that should, he should speak. He should, he should, he should say no, or he should say yes, or he should speak. He should say what he's feeling, uh, but he can't or he won't. Mm. Um, and that even at the very end there in that long kind of when monologue that we were talking about, when it's easy for perceptive readers to see what's really going on, he still can't say, like, why do I feel so guilty? Yeah. Right? And that, I think, keep looking for, I I think that's the thing that holds him back. That's my theory. Like, he can't, when you cannot speak and name something, you cannot overcome it. Totally. It's so well said. So that I think is, that is the great tragedy of this book. And it's spelled out so beautifully crafted so well in this section that we're reading. And so even, you know, I I read it once and then I went back and read it again to prepare for the podcast. And um, through that lens of what should be said, right? What should he have done? Like that was your point, David, earlier. If you're if you're teaching this to high schoolers, what should he have done here? I think f- for um, 
for him, a lot of times the question before action is naming what should he have just said or been honest about here? And then what could the action have been? And how could that have redeemed him? Mm-hmm. That... I, I, that I did think of what it was that I was going to say, and it kind of is tied to that because I was thinking about how you, you were you were talking about how people kind of the question of who can act according to their conscience, and the you get this contrast of these two conversations that I mentioned, mm-hmm. where he he the Darlington's friends sort of drag him into this conversation to prove that oh the average person doesn't know enough stuff about yeah. the world and so they shouldn't be required to we that shouldn't, was so we shouldn't, painful we shouldn't oh my trust, gosh that trust guy, them to make that decisions. character right right oh my gosh i just wanted i i had unholy thoughts about him <laughs> super painful conversation and, and, and anyway then, keep going and then on the other hand he's kind of looking down on these people these you know country people these sort of salt of the earth people who are saying it's every man's duty to act according to his yeah right these two extremes and you know, that seems to be, that's, you have these, these things in opposition to each other throughout this book. Duty and desire is one thing you pointed out. There's Kenton and there's, um, uh, Stevens, but then you have these sort of country people who are saying it's everybody's duty to act according to their conscience. Um, and that, that the future of our country is going to be determined by the way all of us act according to our consciences. And on the other hand, you have these rich lords who are saying, those people don't actually know what they're talking about. So it's up to us to act according to what we think is the right thing to do yes. to preserve this culture that we have spent centuries building. And those are two very different, oh, very yeah. different ways of looking at the world. And that huh. seems to be in keeping with what you're sort of talking about there, Heidi. Mm-hmm. I think that is in keeping with it, but I didn't notice the contrast of those two conversations. Yeah, That's I didn't really good, David. Until David great. brought it up. I just David, think that kind of, is, to continue on your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Mr. Stevens defends the decision of Lord Darlington to let go of the Jew- Jewish girls, what does he say? Lord Darlington knows more than us. He has studied mm-hmm. these matters. Mm-hmm. And Mr. D- and, and Lord Darlington to kind of like explain the matter to Stevens before that says, "I've looked into these matters. I've been reading on these matters." So it's kind of like a superiority of it's it'll be safer it'll be safer if you let the authority who knows more who has had time to dwell on these things kind of like he, that person can be our conscience we right. don't have to object about it he's looked into it he, as opposed to the kind of like lower class people david like you're saying mm-hmm. who want to speak for themselves i think they would readily admit that lord darlington has read more than they have, is more knowledgeable of world affairs than they are. But um, there, uh, what, what, what's coming? What this comes down to, though, is the entire preservation of culture, right? That's right. Because mm. even Darlington is saying, "Look, the the Germans and the Italians, they have allowed someone to take charge, and they're not going to fall apart because of yes." It. And right. look at us; we're letting the rabble lead, and things are right. falling apart. And so the question is, it's, it's it is the it is the question of how you preserve the cultures that you have built. He's saying, we've got to do it. The Italians and the Germans, we have to have somebody at the top who's powerful, who can run things, who can make decisions for people, who can look out for everyone's interests because that's what's going to lead to success. You know, That's what's going to keep things moving along the way they have been. On the other hand, when we let the people make decisions for themselves, when we let people think for themselves, things descend into chaos. And so 
but the, then the people are saying, if we have a chance to act according to our consciences, we can, we're going to be more prepared for the future. Now, I don't, you know, we can debate the merits of democracy, you know, right. All we different want. Question. Right, right. That's a different question. Yeah. But the, the central question here at work between these two ends of the spectrum is how do we preserve what we have built in a way that is going to lead us into a healthy future. And that's right. not unlike the inner things that are going on in, you know, these in Kenton and in um, Stephen's, you know, inner worlds as well. I mean, those things mirror each other. Right. Mm. Yes. That's really good. Yeah. Another signal of the novel's quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Subtext, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, all right. Well, so do you guys want to add anything or, or no? Okay. No, well said. Good good note to ponder. Yeah. The light just on its own went off in the studio. Well, it's I'm time not, to be I'm Man, that's staring. evidence. I'm standing here. Was, <laughs> I, as we were saying, it was time to stop. I was standing here and the, both the lights went out, but my computer that's is still so. charged. And so I'm standing here. The only light is the light of the computer. That's very weird. <laughs> very Spooky. confusing. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, I'm going to get out of here as quickly as possible. So, uh, right? Seriously. <laughs> so for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi and for New College Franklin and for all of us here on the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you next week and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.